was thinking about uh, I like movies a lot. Uh, when I was in school, uh, I did took some film classes just because I like different uh, movies. I kind of wanted to understand how they were made and the way they thought about it. And I, and I came to realize, like through the years, some of my favorite movies uh, take on not tr- a traditional narrative form. A lot of times they'll they'll take and they'll show different stories and different pieces, maybe not even in order chronologically. Uh, or, or they'll take and they'll show different characters and different people and then kind of bring them together and how they intersect. And I always like those kind of films that do that because uh, what they do a lot of times is they help you to see things maybe from a different angle that you hadn't seen it from before. And so maybe they'll show uh, several different characters and the way that they're experiencing their life and the things that are going on and then they'll bring it all together and you're like, oh, now I see a much fuller picture than I saw, than I would have seen if it was just told in more of a traditional way. And so I love stories like that. I love thinking that way. Uh, in a lot of ways, I've been thinking about that as we've been moving through the Gospels, thinking about the life of Jesus and all the people that are around him and the things that they're experiencing, the way that they're seeing what's happening from their limited understanding and what they knew and what they were experiencing. And, and that's really the way I want us to look at these two passages this morning. Uh, if you've been with us, we started right at the beginning of the year and we've chronologically gone through the life of Jesus and we're kind of hitting high points. We're leaving a lot of things out just because to try to get through all of it really up to Easter and the couple weeks after Easter, uh, it was kind of possible to hit all of it. But what we're doing is just looking at these different pieces. And as we get to where we are now, we're really to the last week of Jesus's life, leading us up uh, to the crucifixion. Uh, the first passage that Luke read to us just a second ago from John chapter 12 is on the Sunday morning before the crucifixion that takes place on Friday. And so it's what we call Palm Sunday. And so here we sit today on Palm Sunday as Jesus went into Jerusalem going there for the last time, knowing he was going to be crucified and everyone around him is missing that. They're not seeing exactly what's happening and what he's doing. And so I want us to think a little bit about that. And then we're going to fast forward a little bit and look on Thursday night as they come to arrest Jesus. And so we're going to put those two together. And the way I want us to do that as we look at those is I just want us to kind of focus on the different groups around Jesus and what they're doing and the way they're operating and what they're seeing And then at the end, we'll turn and we'll look at Jesus in the middle of all of this. And he's going to show us exactly what is truly going on. And so hopefully to help prepare our hearts for this week as we move up to uh, Good Friday on Friday, as we'll gather and we'll worship uh, Jesus and him laying his life down for us in the crucifixion. And then as we come next week to celebrate the resurrection at Easter. And so. Let's begin in John chapter 12. And if you want to keep your finger in in Matthew 26, we'll go to that in a minute. But let's start in John chapter 12, where we get the idea, where we call it uh, Palm Sunday is right here in this text. These crowds are gathering now. It says in chapter 12, the next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that was Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. And so they took branches of palm trees and they went out to meet him crying, Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. And so there's this this swirl of activity around Jesus right at this moment. And some people are really, really ecstatic and excited and they're believing that he's the Messiah. Uh, John mentions to us that a lot of them are there because they had either seen or heard that he had just raised Lazarus from the dead. Uh, We just looked at that uh, in in past weeks. And as as Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead and the religious leaders are now fully decided that they're going to kill him. They're plotting on how they will do that. But some people are really excited. So you have this mix of activity around Jesus. Some are really excited 
and some are really out to get him. And you see both. But when he comes in Jerusalem, you see this great crowd gathering around him and being excited about what he's doing. And they're saying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. And they're pointing to uh, Psalm 118, a, a messianic psalm. And they're they're proclaiming that Jesus is the Messiah and look what he's coming to do. And there's an excitement about who he is. But when we stop and we really look at what's going on and what they're saying and the ways that they're doing it, that they're missing what Jesus has really come to do. They're seeing it in one uh, kind of narrow focus. And so you have to understand, we've talked about this all the way through this series, that those around Jesus are looking at him to come and be the Messiah, to be the conquering king, to overthrow Rome, to be a, a great military leader. All of these things are in their understanding and their thinking. And we see that coming out as Jesus comes into Jerusalem on this, this last week before his crucifixion. And if you look closely and you know some of the background historically, you can see that very clearly. Right? When it says in uh, verse 13, they took branches of palm trees and they went out to meet him, crying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. Even the palm branches themselves kind of key us to what they were thinking. Uh, in ancient times around this time, the idea of palm branches were used to celebrate conquering kings. Our military leaders, uh, we can go back and look at historical uh, records 150 years before Jesus comes in Jerusalem. Simon the Maccabee, who helped fight back Syrian forces, uh, helped to free the Jews from Syrian forces, came riding into Jerusalem and they greeted him with palm branches, waving palm branches, ecstatic over this great victory that they'd had. And it wasn't just the Jews that did this, but it was the Roman world as well. Uh, it was on their money. Right? You had palm branches on their money. You had uh, it, it celebrating of a great athlete or a military leader at the coronation of Caesar. They used palm branches for all of this. It was a way to celebrate. It was a symbol of look at this person and look at what they've done. And so it was very clear as Jesus came riding in. Uh, the other Gospels tell us they were throwing down their coats on the road and they were laying down palm branches and they were waving them. And there was this great excitement over who he is and what he'd come to do. But the problem is all along the way, as Jesus has been talking about his kingdom and what he's come to do and what that looks like, they're immediately taking it and putting it in this narrow view. And so they're celebrating Jesus coming, thinking, finally, this is it. Revolution is happening. He's going to be our king. Israel's going to be returned to its glory. And all of these things are there. And all along the way. In this, they're missing the fullness of what Jesus has come to do. And so you see this all the way through. And so this takes place on Sunday morning, that week before. And you get this kind of snapshot of the way people are thinking and the excitement they have, even though they're missing the fullness of what it is. But even in that snapshot, if you read through the Gospels, you have the crowds ecstatic, but you have the religious leaders being very upset over all this. And, and John even makes mention of that in verse 19. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see, you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. They're upset and they're worried and they're like, oh, no, he's got everybody kind of on their, his side. They're wanting to get rid of him. Part of their understanding is if Jesus, they don't believe he's the Messiah. Many of the religious leaders don't. Um, they don't believe that he's the Messiah. And so what they're saying is if he raises up this crowd of people and he comes, we're going to get wiped out by the Romans. 
and, and we're going to be out of a job and we're all going to get killed and this is going to happen. And so they're trying for self-preservation to not let this happen. And so what you see unfold throughout the week after that is Jesus goes and he has some very pointed uh, kind of arguments with the religious leaders. He, he, he tells them he has some very clear words for them. And you see that in those couple days in between. But we're going to skip ahead to Thursday night. And so Thursday night, Jesus will gather together with his disciples and he will bring them into the upper room and they will share a meal together where he will teach them and tell them I'm leaving He'll say, it's better for you. I go away. I'm going to send the Holy Spirit. The, the fullness of all that I'm doing has come to this. They're not fully understanding any of that. But he teaches and he tells them and then he says, OK, let's go. And they get up and they go out into the Garden of Gethsemane where Jesus prays. And he prays about what he is about to face on the cross. And as he's praying, he gets up from that. And that's where we're going to pick up in Matthew chapter 26. And so what happens in Matthew 26 is, is Judas comes with a band of soldiers to arrest Jesus. And we know when we read through that whole scenario in John's gospel about what happens in the upper room, Jesus knows that Judas is going to betray him. In fact, he says, one of you is going to betray me. And then he dismisses Judas to go and get ready to do this. And now he meets them in the garden. And so I want us to put our focus first as we're thinking of all the people around Jesus. We've got the crowd that's excited and now I want us to turn our focus to Judas for just a minute. And so Matthew chapter 26, verse 47, while he was speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a great crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the elders of the people. And now the betrayer had given them a sign saying, the one I will kiss is the man sees him. And he came up to Jesus at once and said, greeting, Rabbi. And he kissed him. And so we've got Judas coming to point out who Jesus is, that he can be arrested. And if you look, Matthew says Judas, who is one of the twelve. Matthew alerts you. This is the same Judas who has been one of the disciples who's been there with Jesus all along the way. And we suddenly start to see the great misunderstanding of how Judas has been missing everything that Jesus has been saying and doing, even though he's been with him in all these ways through this whole time. And part of it, you're alerted to that misunderstanding just by the simple fact that he shows up with a great crowd with swords and clubs to come and arrest Jesus. Like, like the Jesus that he has seen and he has watched and he has spent time with is a violent man that's going to bring revolt and all these things. That he needs all of this with him. And Judas shows up pointing him out so that he can now be arrested. Now there's a lot of uh, hypothesis about what Judas was thinking or what he was going through. We don't know exactly. We do know from the Gospels that Judas always seemed to be about money. Uh, that's mentioned a couple different times that he was known to kind of dip into the funds that was helping support the ministry, that he would do that at different times. He seemed to be all about those sorts of things. He seemed to be in it uh, for the payoff. And so maybe he saw that Jesus was getting to a place that maybe he wasn't going to ascend to the throne. And so he was jumping ship while he could. Uh, some uh, theologians have said maybe that Judas was thinking, I need to get the ball rolling here with Jesus. He's taking too long. This is never going to happen. So maybe I'll force his hand by bringing these guys in to arrest them. But the simple fact is we don't know exactly what Judas was thinking other than he was missing who Jesus was. And he decided to sell him out and betray him. And so as we think about Judas and we focus on him for just a second, I want you to think about all that Judas experienced being one of the disciples who was with Jesus 
and the miracles he saw and the places they went and the, the healings and the way he heard Jesus teach powerfully and the things he said and all that he witnessed. But yet Judas totally missed who Jesus was. And so when I think about that and I think about how close he was, at least in proximity to Jesus in everything, he was going all these places with him and spending all this time with him, yet he didn't know him at all. I want you just to consider that sometimes we can be very close to Jesus in the sense of we're involved in a church or a Bible study or we say we're a Christian or we live in a part of the country where Christianity is very accepted and people would openly say, well, yes, I'm a Christian. And we can be counted in that way and be very near to Jesus. But sometimes we can do that and be very near to him, but not actually know who he is. We can go to a church or be involved with a community because it's like, well, this is this is good for my family or this is good for me to spend time with these other people. And this is good for me to learn good morals or to do these different things and not ever truly know and love who Jesus is. Judas was there in all of it. He was with Jesus all the time and he saw all these things up close and yet he had no clue who he was. He had missed it completely. And so you've got Judas coming to Jesus to have him arrested. He's completely sold him out. But as he comes in, he says, greetings, rabbi. And he kissed him. And Jesus said to him, friend, do what you came to do. And then they came up and laid hands on Jesus and seized him. And behold, one of those who were with Jesus stretched out his hand and drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear And Jesus said to him, put away your sword or put your sword back in its place for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. And so I want us to turn our focus there to the sword wielding man here, which we know from the other gospels. John doesn't tell us, but from the other gospels that it's Peter, right? Peter, Jesus right hand man who's there in everything. And so as things start to go down and they show up to now take Jesus and arrest him, Peter pulls out his sword and starts swinging it. And so you have this picture of Peter quickly. I'm going to start swinging, which if you know anything about Peter or the Gospels, this isn't really surprising. This is kind of how Peter rolls. Right. When things happen, he just acts. Right. He sees things going and he starts swinging. And so we have this. And if, if you read through the, the Gospel accounts, this, this account is in all four Gospels and you put them together. You get a pretty almost comical picture of what happens here with Peter. Right. I'm reading just from the harmony of Gospels, if you put all of them together. And so they come out to get him and they seized him. They lay hands on him. And then there were those who were around him who saw what would follow. And they said, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? So somebody actually asked swords like we doing this. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest servant and cut his right ear off. The servant's name was Malchus. But Jesus said no more of this. And he touched his ear and he healed them. And so I say it's comical in the sense of Luke points out that somebody actually said, should we use swords? And right as they said that, here comes Peter. Ears flying, right? Like he doesn't wait to ask. That's how kind of Peter. That's the way Peter does it. He comes in singing the sword and he cuts the guy's ear off. And you start to see that Peter is still uh, operating in his limited understanding. Now, we pick on Peter a lot because he does a lot of things like this. He acts quickly and impulsively and then kind of gets corrected a lot of times after instead of stopping and asking first. But I want to start with at least what's good about Peter in the sense of he's zealous for God. He's excited for the Lord. 
He's wanting to protect Jesus. He's wanting to be there with him. And he's ready to do whatever to, to protect him, even though he doesn't understand what's going on. I think sometimes we're hard on Peter. But he's operating from his limited understanding. And the problem is his understanding of the situation on a scale of, of one to ten. He's got like a maybe a two or three going right now. Right. He doesn't get any of this. What's happening. In fact, he's told Jesus just not too long before this. You're never going to die. I'm not going to let this happen. Right. And it's almost like he's still operating that way. I told you I wasn't going to let this happen. Right. And he starts wielding swords. And so you see him, his rash response that's based on limited information. So the Bible talks about zeal without knowledge. It's a dangerous place to be when we start to act impulsively, but we don't have all the information. And so sometimes we begin to operate that way. Zeal without knowledge. Maybe you've done that before. You jump out and do something and then you stop and go, oh, maybe I should have waited. Maybe I should have taken a little time before I jumped in. And so here we see Peter doing that instead of stopping and praying or, or in this case, asking God, since he's standing right in front of him. Right. Is this the way we're doing this? Or as someone else was asking God, at least wait for the answer before you start swinging. But oftentimes we can do the same thing. We can revert to worldly way of thinking instead of stopping and praying and seeking the Lord and seeking wise counsel and seeing what his word says, we just jump right into it. And the truth is, all of us need to be reminded of that. We can all slip into that kind of way of thinking in the moment when uh, the the struggle of our life and the things that are pressing in on us, it's easy to revert back to operating that way instead of stopping and seeking the Lord, the Lord and abiding in his word. Now, Peter is understandably scared in the situation. I think all of us would be as they come to the Roman soldiers come to arrest him with clubs and swords. It's probably a pretty serious and scary situation. But Peter reverts to his old way of thinking. It's almost like he's forgotten everything that Jesus has taught him and told him in the moment. But the truth is, when I think about Peter and I, I sympathize with the way he's thinking and the way he's operating and I look at him and it's easy to be hard on him. But the truth is, we have more of the story than Peter did. See, oftentimes I'll, I'll operate just like Peter did, but I don't have the excuse. Peter was seeing it from his very limited understanding, not knowing what was to come and the resurrection and what Jesus was going to accomplish. But we do. We have the fullness of that. We have the Holy Spirit in full indwelling us. And so stopping and taking time in those moments and seeking the Lord, seeking it in the community of believers. It's important to remember that even when we feel like God's showing us something, he tells us to to bring it before others, to let them weigh in and speak into that. But so we've got Peter here missing completely because he's still thinking much like the crowd was, even much like Judas was, that this is going to be a revolution. And so we're going to take swords. And Jesus says, no. But then what about the other disciples? So he swings the sword. Jesus stops him. And then in verse 56, it says, but all this had taken place that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. And then all the disciples left him and fled. And just like Judas and just like Peter, they're missing the whole thing and they immediately take off and flee. And to be honest, if we stop and we really think about it, are you surprised by that? I think, well, not really, not given the misunderstanding that we see continually happening. Jesus is telling them over and over, we're going to go to Jerusalem and they're going to deliver me up 
and I'm going to be killed and this is going to happen. And every time he tells them this, it's like it just goes right over their heads. It's like everybody's like, I don't know what he's talking about. That doesn't make any sense. It didn't compute to their way of thinking. And so when what happens is exactly what Jesus told them was going to happen, they all take off and they all scatter in that moment. And it's a picture of exactly what can happen in our life at different times when the circumstances of life begin to push in and we start to see those things. And we can if we're not uh, trusting God and seeking him and abiding in his word and holding fast to him, it's easy to start to think "Ah, it's all out of control. Now, what do we do? Start to scatter into different places and different things. And so you see them doing that here. And so I want you just to think about this picture of them all leaving Jesus in that moment. All the misunderstanding. One of his disciples there that's been with him comes to betray him. Peter's totally missing the point, pulls out the sword, starts chopping. The rest of them just all take off. And you've got this picture of Jesus there in the midst of this with all his closest friends, his closest followers, scattering and leaving him. If you look at the all four gospel accounts, you see in Mark's account, it gets to the end of this. And he adds this strange little addendum on the end. And uh, in, in Mark's account, it says, and a young man followed him with nothing but a linen cloth about his body. And they seized him, but he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. And that's all it says. And that's like the end of the section in Mark. And you read that and you're like, OK, why did he put that in there? Right. Like, why did he add this little thing? And I think at least part of it is he's just showing what happens when we're so intent on saving ourselves, how quickly we can abandon Jesus in tough moments and quickly run off. I think that's part of it. Uh, some scholars say that Mark added that in. You know, Mark's gospel is Peter's eyewitness account. Mark was younger than the disciples, but he was around during this time. And then later he'll write his gospels of Peter's uh, recollections of what he was experiencing and seeing. But it's led some scholars to say that maybe uh, that was Mark himself there, that Mark was the one that was following behind Jesus and watching what happens. And as soon as they turned and grabbed him, he took off and ran away naked. And so you see this picture of everyone deserting Jesus because they're missing the fullness of what's happening. And so I want us just to spend a couple of minutes here at the end and look at Jesus in both scenes. Because as we focus our eyes on Jesus and what's happening, we see what's really happening in all of this. And so if we go back to John chapter 12, the triumphal entry and everyone is so excited and they're saying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And this is the king of Israel. And they're so excited. And in verse 14, it says, Jesus found a young donkey and he sat on it just as it is written. Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming sitting on a donkey's colt and his disciples did not understand these things at first. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and he had and been done to him. And so I want you to think about what Jesus was doing as they were coming in. Uh, John quotes it. Matthew quotes it as well in both their texts. They both quote Zechariah nine, which Luke read to us at the beginning this morning. And they're pointing back to an Old Testament prophecy that comes 500 years before. And here Jesus comes with this fervor around him that he's going to be our king and he's going to overthrow governments and we're going to follow him. And what does he do? He comes in because he is their king and he is the Messiah and he is bringing the fullness of all these things. But along the way, he's correcting their misunderstanding as he does it. 
He's embracing that he is the Messiah. And so he chooses an Old Testament prophecy about him and he fulfills it perfectly. But in his doing, he's correcting where they're missing. And if you to get that, you've really got to listen to what it says in Zechariah chapter nine. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem and the battle bow shall be cut off and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from river to the ends of the earth. And you also, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. And so as Jesus rides in on the donkey, he could have come in on a war horse and said, follow me, let's go and whip the people up into a frenzy. Instead, he came as the suffering servant sitting on the donkey and he says, I am coming to bring peace. I am not coming to do the war horse of Jerusalem. In fact, I'm coming to cut that off. I'm coming to do something far greater than you ever imagined. And he's teaching them as they go. And John even says, like, he did this and we didn't even notice. Not until after was he glorified that we saw what he was doing and we made the connections of what he was saying. But there it was all along. God had spoken this through the prophet some 500 years before that our king would come in in great humility, riding on a donkey to bring peace through all through the blood of his covenant. And Jesus was teaching them all along the way. I'm not here to start a revolution in the way that you think I am. I am here to lay down my life. And so he rides in and he comes their great king humbly riding on a donkey. And then you fast forward to Thursday night and you see him doing and saying all the exact same things. The disciples pull out swords. Lord, are we doing this for swords? And Peter starts swinging and Jesus says, no. It's not why I'm here. It's not what it looks like. In verse 52, put away your sword, put it back in its place for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. And then he says, do you think that I cannot appeal to my father and he will at once send more than 12 legions of angels? But how then should the scriptures be fulfilled that it must be so? At that hour, Jesus said to the crowds, have you come out as a robber as against me as a robber with swords and clubs to capture me day after day? I sat in the temple teaching and you did not seize me Says you could have taken me at any time. I would have gone with you in this. I can stop this whenever I want. You know, we're reading in in John's gospel this morning in the equipping class when they come out to take Jesus and they say, are you Jesus of Nazareth? And he says, I am he. And they all fall down. And he's showing them so emphatically, I am in control of this situation. I can stop it whenever I want, but I am choosing to do this. Everybody around Jesus, as the disciples flee, as Judas betrays, as the Romans come to get them, they all think that they've got it and they know what's going on. And Jesus stands in the middle going, none of this is out of control. This is all my plan. And I've come that the prisoners can go free. We're the prisoners. 
and the sin and shame and guilt of our own. And Jesus comes to say, I will do what you can never do for you. And I do it willingly. And so you see the misunderstanding everywhere except with Jesus. It's never outside of his control. And so as we think about this week and we come to Friday and the next week as we gather to celebrate the resurrection, I want to just leave you with thinking about that. That Jesus was always the willing sacrifice. This was always his plan. It was never outside of his control. This was not an accident. He didn't stumble into this. He willingly chose to lay his life down so that we could have our deepest need met and be restored to him. So thanks be to God for the great love with which he loves us. Let's pray. God, we thank you for this season. We thank you for this time as we get to stop and just remember your sacrifice and what you've done for us. I pray that as we gather on Friday uh, to contemplate and think about exactly what you did on the cross, that you would impress upon us uh, with a new fullness that we've never seen before of your great love for us. I thank you that as we see these scenes of you standing in the middle when all seems to be out of control, that you are perfectly in control, that you love us with a love that meets us in the middle of all of that Even as people are running and abandoning you, stand faithful. And so we thank you. We thank you that you meet us in the midst of our sin and that you love us and that you draw us to yourself. And so we just say thank you. We pray that this week would be a joyous time of celebration and remembrance of your great love for us. And we pray all of it in Jesus' name. Amen.